Benjamin Franklin said, when the well is dry, they know the worth of water. This is the weekend our nation is set aside to remember Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. We'll look more at the issue he's most remembered for, the struggle for equality and human rights in connection with the American understanding of race next week. This week, I want to lift up something of a broader theme of justice that connects with Green Sanctuary, among other things. One of the things that the Green Sanctuary program calls upon us to pay attention to is the issue of environmental justice, including what happens when the powerful try to take advantage of the weak. This is one of the things that Dr. King continues to call our attention to. I was a teenager back in the 1960s, 13 when the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed. So I remember Dr. King as one of the formative voices of my youth. It was Dr. King as much as anyone who called our attention to the connection among all of the movements for social justice. He argued a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Dr. King received serious criticism from within the civil rights movement and from others when he became more and more vocal in his opposition to the Vietnam War. He was again criticized for his efforts on behalf of economic justice, often conducted in connection with the American labor movement. But he persisted to the end of his life. In the early days of the Green Movement, minorities and the poor in general often regarded efforts around environmental clauses as distractions from the work of justice. Environmentalists were often seen as having white, middle-class, or upper-class concerns about wilderness that poor people would never be able to afford to visit. Environmentalists were sometimes seen as being more concerned about endangered species than about the lives of our poor brothers and sisters around the world. Over the years, though, it's become more and more clear that poor communities in America and around the world usually suffer the most from pollution-related problems because they're the least able to avoid the consequences. The poor, for example, are more likely to suffer from lead and mercury poisoning than most of the rest of the people. Over the past few years, I have spoken to you about global climate change and about how not just the polar bears but the poor around the world are threatened. This morning, I want to tell you a little about another growing crisis that perhaps because of the attention given to global warming, perhaps simply because our government is more focused on war than on the poor, is not visible to most Americans. This crisis involves water. On a weekend when we've been under a flash flood watch, it may be odd to suggest that there's a water crisis, but in some ways that's the best time to make my point. Right here in the Ohio Valley, we are rich with water, and so we don't notice it much. Living here, we take water for granted. Our well isn't dry, and so we don't pay much attention to the worth of water. But I come from another place, and I remember another way of seeing the world. You see, I grew up in California, the Golden State. The Golden State, not just because of the gold rush, but 
also because of the color the hillsides turn every year in spring just after Easter. When I lived in California, the normal weather pattern was that the rains came in the winter and into the early spring, but they stop at about Easter and don't return again until the winter. The spring grasses that grew green on the hillsides all turned golden like straw. Kentucky was, is in comparison, amazingly green, stupendously green throughout the year. It was a shock to see coming from the dry west. I think it was the second summer that I lived here, we experienced what the Weather Bureau called a serious drought. I remember one of the minor effects that probably nobody else paid much attention to. Hardware stores on their marquee signs out front, they were all advertising, we have sprinklers. I was amazed. It seems that many people around here simply assumed that it would rain regularly enough that they'd never have to water their lawns. I, on the other hand, had a hard time getting my head around the idea that we were in the middle of a drought because even with the reduced rainfall by local standards, it was raining more here that summer than it ever had in my experience of more than 30 California summers. While people here felt inconvenienced by having to put out sprinklers, my parents in the Santa Clara Valley went through periods where they weren't allowed to water their lawn. Water rationing became a way of life of them for them for some years. And when I visited, I had to learn a new way of taking a shower. The water that you run out of the pipes waiting for the hot water to get from the hot water heater to the bathroom, you kept a couple of buckets in the bathtub and caught that cold water in the buckets and set it aside so that you could keep some favorite plant out in the yard alive. When the hot water came, you got wet, and then you turned it off with a switch on the shower nozzle. You lathered up, washed your hair, and turned the water back on only to rinse off the soap. It was inconvenient when you were used to something else. But California children came to understand that that was just the normal way of taking a shower. Those of you who went to visit the orphanage this congregation sponsors in Behiga, Kenya, have seen something of the real problems that a shortage of clean, safe water can bring. In Behiga, the water doesn't come from a municipal system monitored and treated for safety. It comes from a stream and from a well. And the problem of waterborne diseases is all too real. American visitors, like our TJ friends, are carefully instructed never to drink the local water. Don't even eat the raw vegetables that may have been washed in the local water. When I was a child in California, we would regularly visit my grandmother, who lived in another much more rural part of the state than we did. No municipal water where she lived. Her water came from the well behind the house, it tasted funny to me. It sometimes upset my digestion, sometimes even left a red stain on the sheets that were supposed to be white. But it was basically safe and adequate, except in times of the most serious droughts. 
In the Higa, however, the situation is different. Clean, safe water there is in short, short supply, making even basic sanitation difficult, increasing the risk of ill health. And as serious as the situation is in Vihiga, there are places in the world where conditions are even worse. Beacon Press, the Unitarian Universalist-owned publishing company, put out a book last year that catalogs some of the water problems around the world. The book is called When the Rivers Run Dry. It's by science writer Fred Pierce. The first dust jacket blurb on the back puts the situation in perspective. Environmentalist Bill McKibben starkly notes, oil we can replace, water we can't. There's an old joke that makes the point. I bought some instant water the other day, but I couldn't figure out what to add to it. When the well is dry, when the rivers run dry, you know the worth of water. The Earth's surface is about three-quarters water. Our TJ children last year had a prop that they used to show you something about that. They had a box labeled all the water in the world. They took out of the box a small container to stand for all the fresh water in the world. Then they took out a tiny container to show the water that's available in lakes, rivers, and wetlands. About 97% of the world's water is the salt water in the oceans. The remaining 3% is fresh. About three-quarters of the fresh water is, at least until global warming escalates, caught up in ice. About a quarter of the fresh water is groundwater and soil moisture. About 1% of that 3% of the total water in the world is the fresh water of lakes, rivers, and wetlands. An estimated 5 million people per year die of waterborne diseases. They don't have the safe municipal system that we have. Countless other millions and tens of millions suffer from the diseases. Fred Pierce puts the figures a bit differently. Maybe this understanding helps. An acre foot of water is, surprisingly, the amount of water it takes to cover an acre with one foot. About 32 billion acre feet of water flow into the world's oceans each year. If you subtract the flow that goes to the Arctic and that goes through areas where people, for the most part, don't live, Pierce comes up with about 7 billion acre feet of fresh flowing water available annually. That's about 370,000 gallons per person on the planet. Sounds like plenty. Sounds like more than we'd ever use in a year. But Americans, with American agriculture, American industry, American ways of life, turn out to use from 400 to 530,000 gallons a year significantly more than our share. But that's not really the problem. The problem is that in many places there isn't that average available to begin with. 
The problem is that people are acting a little like elephants with no sense. We're trying to claim all the water there is and winding up with there being less of it for ourselves and for the other creatures who need it. This morning we only have a little time to look at what Pierce reveals about what's going on in the world, so I'll take your attention to two related places. First is Pakistan, the Islamic country with nuclear weapons, the place where Osama bin Laden is said to be hiding. Our ally in the war on terror, as long as the president who first took power in a military coup continues to hold office there. Pakistan is the sixth most populous nation in the world, the second largest with a majority Islamic population. We'll also look briefly at Bangladesh, once a part of Pakistan, located on the other side, the eastern side of India. Bangladesh, as you may recall, stands to be severely harmed by flooding if global sea level rises from global warming. Tens of millions of people stand to be displaced from their homes and from the low-lying land that they use to grow their food. Pakistan. The Indus River flows through Pakistan and has provided water there for an agricultural civilization for at least the last 5,000 years. The traditional practice on the Indus was to construct low earthen dams that would force the river to flood bankside fields annually when the monsoon rains came. That was sustainable for millennia. When the British took control of the area, they decided to improve things, building permanent dams and a system of canals to irrigate land that could never have been cultivated before. Today, Pierce tells us no other country in the world except Egypt is more dependent on one river. But the dams and canals, it turns out, are temporary solutions over the time of history and geology. These days, the Indus delivers something like 24 million tons of salt. 100,000 acres of Pakistani farmland a year are being abandoned because they become too salty to grow anything. Some farmers try to use more water to wash away the salt, but now a fifth of the total acreage of Pakistan's farmland is waterlogged and can't grow crops. Pakistan's population is expanding rapidly. Its farmland is shrinking. Pakistan uses annually 138 million acre-feet of water for rice, wheat, and cotton out of an average flow of 146 million acre-feet from the Indus. More and more these days, however, the Indus isn't reaching its average flow. These days, the Indus is often largely dry for a few hundred miles from its mouth. Water doesn't reach the delta anymore. Half the mangrove swamps of the Indus Delta have died. Most of the Delta's fish are gone. Drinking water is becoming scarce. In addition, a million acres of mangroves and farmland have been lost in the Delta. It's a little like the wetlands outside of New Orleans that you've seen in the reports about Hurricane Katrina. The wetlands that used to be there to protect New Orleans are gone. The same in the Indus Delta. Millions of people are being forced from their farms into the cities of Pakistan. 
Americans these days seem to talk about Islamic extremists who hate freedom. In Pakistan, it may be that people without water just feel angry or ignored or oppressed. The same salting of irrigated fields has happened in many places over time and is still happening even in places like California. But Pakistan is one of the more dangerous places where that problem is disrupting lives. The Indus flows through Pakistan, but it doesn't originate there. It begins next door in Kashmir. If you follow the disputes between Pakistan and its neighbor India, you may recall Kashmir is a majority Muslim state that had a Hindu ruler at the time of the partition between India and Pakistan. Pakistan claims Kashmir, the Hindu ruler made it part of India. There have been three occasions of armed conflict, of essentially war between Pakistan and India over Kashmir. The first came when India cut the flow of some of the tributaries to the Indus. A 1960 treaty apportioned the water between the two nations, but India is now building a billion-dollar dam on the river whose water was given to Pakistan by that treaty. The Indian government officially says it's only going to generate power. It's not going to hold back any water to which Pakistan is entitled. But Indian nationalists have talked openly about keeping the water and diverting it to Indian fields. Pakistan is suspicious. Both sides have nuclear weapons. Meanwhile, on the other side of India, Bangladesh is located on the delta of the river Ganges. Bangladesh is the seventh largest nation in the world by population. It has something like 12 million tube wells that have been sunk over the past 30 years. Well-intended Westerners funded the wells to save lives. Some 250,000 people a year were dying of waterborne diseases in Bangladesh. UNICEF funded the first 900,000 of these wells. Now, however, experts believe that half or more of these wells produce water with unsafe levels of arsenic. The arsenic has washed down over millennia from the Himalayas, but was safely contained underground until the wells were drilled. Wells sunk 60 to 300 feet deep turn out to produce the most arsenic. The majority of Bangladesh's 68,000 villages get their water from wells drawing from that zone. Arsenic poisoning is cumulative and takes years to develop in the people using the wells. But by now, tens of thousands of Bangladeshis have developed skin lesions, cancers, and other symptoms of the poisoning. It's estimated a quarter of a million people will die of arsenic poisoning in the next decade in Bangladesh. Meanwhile, people still don't know which wells are safe and which are dangerous because relatively few have actually been tested for the arsenic level. New studies show there may be arsenic in the groundwater near the Ganges all the way back to its source in the Himalayas so that 800 million people may be at risk. Imagine how this story might be told by al-Qaeda, Islamic people being slowly 
secretly poisoned by the West. Imagine trying to explain to the people who are dying that it's just a matter of good intentions gone wrong. In the Santa Clara Valley where I grew up, when the first white residents sunk wells, they didn't even need to pump the water. It just flowed out. But as more and more water was used, the water table fell. Wells required pumps and had to be drilled deeper and deeper. And as more water was pulled from the ground, the valley floor began to sink. That is, without the water in the ground to maintain the spaces where it had been stored, the ground began to compact so that there was less and less space for new water to become groundwater. This excess withdrawal is happening around the world now. In Pakistan, for example, farmers in the Punjab compensate for the lessening availability of water from the Indus with groundwater. But they're currently pumping more or 30% more than is recharged into the underground aquifers each year. So the water table falls by three to six feet every year. The Green Revolution that allowed Pakistan, like much of the rest of the developing world, to feed itself depended on increased irrigation for crops. The world is now drawing down its underground water reserves faster than nature can replenish them. Here's estimates that a tenth of the world's food is being grown with underground water that is not being replaced. The water crisis is real and global, though the form it takes is different from place to place. There are a variety of solutions to it. There are things we can do. Instead of lining rivers with concrete the way California has done, most famously in Los Angeles, you remember the drag race scene from Greece? That's in a riverbed. That's the Los Angeles River. Instead of carrying water away quickly in a concrete-lined channel, turns out that nature had the better idea to begin with. It's better to restore the original meanders of the river, to let the water travel slowly, to provide areas that it's all right to flood. This helps recharge the underground water table while protecting developed areas. Ancient techniques for developing sustainable amounts of water were developed by the Persians and others thousands of years ago, and some of these systems still function today, thousands of years old, in the area of Palestine and the area of Iran. Ancient civilizations also discovered something that we eventually learned in the Santa Clara Valley. We call them percolation ponds now. The ancients had other names. The idea is to gather water in the rainy season and to put it back on the ground and let it sink back into the water table. Something basic and simple. Storing water in reservoirs loses huge amounts of water to evaporation. Storing water underground keeps it. In some places, people are channeling rain runoff directly into wells. It's a way of putting water back again. In other places, like Vahiga, cisterns provide the viable solution for collecting safe, clean water for human consumption. One of our future projects with Vahiga will likely be to help the orphanage obtain and set up its cistern system. 
40 years ago, Dr. King spoke at Riverside Church in New York City in opposition to the Vietnam War. He said, we must not engage in a negative anti-communism, but rather in a positive thrust for democracy, realizing that our greatest defense against communism is to take offensive action on behalf of justice. We must, with positive action, seek to remove those conditions of poverty, insecurity, and injustice, which are the fertile soil in which the seed of communism grows and develops. Replace the word communism with the word terrorism. And I think what Dr. King had to say then still applies. What if America, instead of just being known as the one remaining superpower because of its military and economic might, was once again known for the power of its dreams and the generous actions of its people? What if America found a way to be both powerful and peaceful so that instead of needing to win its battles with just military force, it could use moral force? If America were to live the American dream of justice, of the equal worth and dignity of all people, into existence not just here in America but throughout the world, I think it would be a lot harder to find enemies who could be said to, quote, hate freedom. If instead of standing virtually alone against the world on issues like global warming, we led the way to a greener future, if instead of living out the maxim coined in the American West that water flows uphill to money, water flows uphill to money, we joined in a global coalition to make the right to clean, safe water one of the inalienable rights of our world. Wouldn't we be not just a safer people, but a better people? There were real problems in the world, and I think we cannot deal with them all with more troops, with smarter weapon systems, and with denial we can do more of what this congregation is doing in Vahiga, helping out. Dr. King argued back in 1967, a genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to humankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual societies. This calls for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and section. It is a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all people. When I speak of love, I'm not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I am speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life, History is cluttered with the wreckage of nations and individuals that pursued the self-defeating path of hate. As Arnold Toynbee says, the historian, love is the ultimate force that makes for the saving choice of life and good against the damning choice of evil and death. Therefore, the first hope in our inventory must be the hope that love is going to have the last word.
It is, I think, time for America to reclaim the dream that we would share with, not impose on the world. Let America be that great, strong land of love where opportunity is real and equality is in the air we breathe. All life is interrelated, Dr. King said. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied into a single garment of destiny. We must either learn to live together as brothers or we are all going to perish together as fools. It's up to us to lift up love and cooperation as part of the American dream. As the Tao tells us, nothing in the world is softer than water, yet nothing is better at overcoming the hard and strong. This is because nothing can really alter it. That the soft overcomes the hard and the gentle overcomes the aggressive is something that everybody knows. We all know that water cycles again and again from the sea to the clouds to the rain to the rivers and to the sea again. The worth of water is that it sustains life, but it is also that it inspires life through its capacity to return again and again to itself, purified and regenerated, like the dream to which we return again and again, the dream of freedom and the beloved community, the dream of justice rolling down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. We humans get diverted or even lost from time to time. But eventually we return like water again to the remembered dream of what we can be and why we want to be it for ourselves and for each other and for our future. I invite you to turn in your hymnal to number 148. Let freedom span both east and west. Please rise as you